1: recipes, health, lifestyle. There's a huge campaign, of course, to conserve
0: the climate, quite rightly. We've got to conserve the climate for our, our children. But we also have to conserve antibiotics for our children. We've seen what happens when we get a, a, an infectious agent that we don't have a, um, a treatment for with COVID. It's turning us back into 19th century kind of um, situation where most
1: people could potentially be dev- dying of infectious diseases. where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Today, I am talking with the incredible Professor John Joe McFadden. He's Professor of Molecular Genetics at the University of Surrey which is incidentally where I'm doing my master's in nutritional medicine. And his principal field of research is in molecular genetics, particularly that of microbes that cause infectious diseases and antimicrobial resistance. And that was the primary aim for our conversation today on the podcast. However, he has also been an advocate for quantum biology for nearly 20 years. Now, just a bit of context, quantum biology isn't a new field. However, it hasn't been regarded as a field of much um, academic rigor, um, for the uh, until the last twenty years, where it's actually come into fashion because there have been some fascinating studies looking at proving why living things can also be governed and explained by quantum physics. Quantum physics is, without doubt, one of the most complicated subject matters. Uh, in existence uh, and I, to pretend that I know anything about it would be frankly a lie. What I've done is compiled a number of lectures that John Joe has has produced as well as some others that I think people are going to find absolutely fascinating and they definitely break it down into its um it, it, its building blocks and I would highly recommend you listen to those perhaps before listening to the podcast because we, we do do a deep dive right at the end of the podcast into quantum biology and how that relates to human consciousness, which is broadly defined as uh, free will. Uh, We also talk a bit about artificial intelligence, and I'm not talking about machine learning. I'm talking about genuine artificial general intelligence, which Professor finds absolutely invigorating and fascinating I personally am a little bit scared by it, um, but you might be on the other side of the fence and I completely respect that opinion. Um, We didn't get a a massive amount of time to talk about it because of professors' time commitments. However, if you do want me to talk a bit more about this with relevant guests, I am more than happy to do it because I find this, this subject matter absolutely fascinating. But what I would do, go to the podcast page, thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast, check out the links that I've put there if you're interested in the subject matter a bit more. And we'll be doing other podcasts on microbial resistance as well to give you a bit more foundation and some tips as well. Um, Human consciousness, like I said, fascinating field, very poorly understood. And I think there are some things that we can learn from religion and belief systems and why that may actually yield... Um, actionable um, effects, actual um, uh, results. And this definitely blurs uh, with two other podcasts that I've done. One with Jeffrey Redinger, uh, who studied spontaneous remission. And the other um, with Eddie Stern, who's a yoga instructor who talks and is a scholar um, in, uh, in Indian philosophy and, and um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita in particular as well. So um, if you're interested in the other applications of human consciousness, I would listen to those. This is more the scientific basis of what consciousness consists of uh, and spoiler alert, its energy. Um, so yes, uh, this is the introduction to the podcast. Uh, listen right to the end and I will give you some actionable tips. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Um, I'd love for you to talk to the listeners a bit about how you got into the field, uh, how you started your academic career, and, and what you're doing uh, today. Yeah, um,
0: well, I started my academic career with a degree in biochemistry and then went on to do a PhD looking at uh, uh, viruses, in fact, plant viruses at that time, uh, so not human pathogens. And then did a postdoc at St. Mary's uh, in London uh, with Bob Williamson then on um, genetics and uh, looking at genetic disease, human genetic disease. And, then, and that, wasn't, that wasn't a very successful uh, postdoc, I must admit. And uh, one of the, um, um, uh, if anyone was doing postdoc and not having a bad time, and having a bad time, then don't give up. <laughs> Your next postdoc can work much better. So um, I went on to another postdoc at St. George's then and working on Crohn's disease, of all things. Um, and then I stumbled into microbiology, really, at that point, by um, reports coming out that the mycobacterium, uh, mycobacterium paratuberculosis, was um, responsible for causing Crohn's disease. I worked under John Herman Taylor, a very brilliant surgeon at uh, St. George's, and um, persuaded him that it was worth going to the U.S. to go and visit this guy uh, Rod Chiodini who had the strains and I brought them back did some of the genetic fingerprinting tools that I'd learned how to use at uh, Bob Williamson's lab and showed that the human strains were the same as cow strains and we published that work and, um, and uh, did quite a, lot, uh, quite a lot of other work on Crohn's disease um, but that really wasn't going anywhere to be honest and um, Uh, Then I spread further into mycobacterial disease and obviously bumped into TB and started working on TB and I've been working on TB ever since, tuberculosis. um, And then tuberculosis bumped into antimicrobial resistance a few decades ago and it's becoming increasingly a problem in antimicrobial, in in that we had drug-resistant strains of TB appearing appearing fairly soon after the first drugs such as streptomycin rifampicin, etc., were introduced, um, drug resistance soon followed, and that then prompted the use of combination therapy, giving many drugs, and that uh, kept the problem back for many years. But then, particularly in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, suddenly these strains were appearing that were, uh, first of all, drug-resistant to a single drug, and then multi-drug-resistant to many drugs, uh, extended drug resistance to usually six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve 10, 11, 12 kind of drugs. And now we even talk about totally resistant strains. Mm. These are strains that are turning tuberculosis in, in places where the disease is common from a curable disease to an incurable disease and potentially bringing us back to the 19th century when most people in Europe were dying of tuberculosis because at that time there was no treatment. And uh, with these really... Ultra-resistant strains of TB that are now um, prevalent—that um, nightmare scenario is returning. That TB may become untreatable again. So, uh, what that is prompting is—is is, uh, research, and that's uh, what my work uh, is all about uh, here at uh, University of Surrey on uh, TB and. Um, Um, We work on a number of different um, uh, projects, including looking at vaccines and development of vaccines, but um, most recently looking at um, drug resistance and particularly a kind of of pre-drug resistance state that we call persistence. Now, what happens in persistence? Well, actually, I'll tell you first of all what happens, what we mean by drug resistance, and that is that if you take a bacterial population, hit them with a drug, say rifampicin, if it's TB, um, then about one in 100 million cells in the population will, by chance, have a mutation that will make it resistant to rifampicin. And that's what we call genetic resistance. You then take... So if you take hundreds of millions of TB cells, expose them to rifampicin, just rifampicin, one in 100 million will be resistant. And if you grow it up, it will... Continue to be resistant, and that's what we call genetic resistance. It's heritable resistance, and it's caused by a mutation in the genome. And we understand that, and that's what that's what's causing the problem in MDR TB, multi-drug resistant TB, and in other organisms, similar problems of genetic resistance. But there is another state, and that is if you take Mycobacterium tuberculosis or any bug and any antibiotic and you treat it with an antibiotic uh, for, say, a day or so, and then you remove the antibiotic, you will have killed 99.99% of the bacteria. But some of them will remain. And when you take these and grow them up, they're not resistant. They're just like the parent. They're just as sensitive as the parent to the antibiotic. But somehow they manage to survive exposure to antibiotics. And these we call persistence. And we think they're the kind of progenitors of drug resistance, because if you get cells surviving the drugs for long enough, then you'll eventually get a mutant turning up. So there's a lot of interest in the field of finding out more about these persistence, these bacteria that um, are, um, are uh, able to survive antibiotic. And no one, we don't really know how or why they are able to survive antibiotic. But we know that it correlates with some factors. For example, growing slowly is a good thing. To survive antibiotics, growing slowly. So in the latest paper I caught, uh, I can't rethink, uh, there are other factors as well that are, are associated. And, and what, I desc- what we describe it as in this paper that we've just published is what we call a hunkering down um, hypothesis, that there are many ways by which bacteria will spontaneously and through random fluctuations inside their cells go into a hunkering down. And by hunkering down, I mean kind of just getting under the radar, getting, getting yourself into a bomb shelter, moving slowly, doing everything slowly, and protecting yourself, then you might survive the onslaught of antibiotics. And this hunkering down seems to be something that happens randomly. If you, for example, look at all of the cells in the population, and we do this by looking down the microscope or looking at how fast it takes for a cell to replicate, you get what's called a normal curve or a Gaussian curve, which has that normal shape like that. One in fast growing cells, the other end slow growing cells. So some of the cells spontaneously grow slowly. Some of them may have other differences. They may make less protein, they may make more protein. And all of these random fluctuations inside cells will end up with some of the cells being in this hunkering down state. And this hunkering down state will allow them to survive antibiotics, but only for a generation or two, and then they lose it. So it's not really heritable in the long term, but it's heritable long enough for them to survive a dose of antibiotics. So we're trying to work out more about that. And there's all sorts of odd things that we don't really understand. For example, I'll give, you one. I'll give you one which is something that's, puzzled, that's been puzzling us for a long time. It's easy, to, easy enough to explain. So um, I said there are cells that grow fast and cells that grow slow. Uh, the, so the fast-growing cells get killed by the antibiotic, the slow-growing cells don't. So we're interested in what makes a cell grow slowly. So one of the things we decided to look at was how heritable is slow-growth rate itself? So if you have a slow growing cell and it divides into, that's how bacteria uh, replicate, divide into, so the two daughter cells, as we call them, they're actually two halves of the mother cell. So the mother cell just grows long and then divides into two daughter cells. So we ask the question: is growth rate itself, the time it takes for a cell to divide, is that heritable? So are the daughter cells at all like the mother cell? So if it's a slow mum, does she make slow daughters? If she's a fast mum, does she make fast daughters? And the answer to that was no, she doesn't, which I boring enough, but now we found something odd that that's, okay, not inheritable, but then if you look at the two sisters, they're almost identical, have nearly the same growth rate. So it's like if you have twin daughters that look identical, like, like them, each other, but nothing like you or your wife. How do you do that? Mm. Now, I just don't know. And so it's a possible, you take a cell, cut it in two, you make two cells that are totally unlike the mother and they're much like each other. So, and it's, that phenomenon is is found in all bacteria, which we've looked at and actually in other cells. And no one really knows why. And it's a fundamental thing about growth that we don't really understand in bacterial cells or indeed any other cell. How come you can take a cell, make the two halves different from the mum and yet identical to each other? So there are all these fascinating stuff and interesting stuff in there. But what we found in the recent study, when we looked at this business of heritability of from one cell, one generation to the next of slow growth rate or fast growth rate, we found there was a gene that, influenced that heritability and that was what people was about and if the cells had this gene they had a high rate of heritability like i described from the mother from the between the sisters sisters were very similar but if there was a mutation in this gene then they lost that similarity so whatever this mysterious thing is that makes them similar this gene seems to influence it so the next step in this study is to try to try to find out what this gene is doing, because obviously this is involved with persistence because the slow growers are the persistent, so if we can understand what, um, what drives them, then hopefully we'll have some clues as to how to knock them on the head and kill them faster, because that's the kind of dream of this, kind of re- this um, field of research. If we can understand persistence and know what it is and, ha- and what the cells are doing, then we can maybe design drugs that will attack them and completely um, uh, kill the population, um, the population of cells. And that's very important, particularly in TB, which as I'm sure you know, you have to treat for six months normally. Mm. And well, the reason well, you have to treat for six months, I'll just finish this and then let you butt in. The reason you have to treat for six months is that you kill 99.99% of the bacteria within a few days, And which ones do you get left? The persisters. So the persisters are why you have to treat TB for six months. If we could kill them more rapidly, then maybe we could have a course of treatment for TB that would only take a few weeks. And that would transform TB treatment. And it would lead to less strong resistance because it's that lengthy Time that you have to have the cells exposed to the antibiotic that allows them to develop mutations. If we could get rid of them in a few weeks, then we could eliminate the problem of drug resistance. So that's why we need to understand persistence. Mm. Gene that we've uh, discovered maybe a clue that will give us an um, an edge into killing them
1: faster. I just wanted to ask the phenomena that you described there, where the um, offspring, uh, for want of a better word, were, that were genetically um, identical to each other, yet distinct from the former. It, does that have a name at all?
0: Um, we, we call it the scary twin phenomenon. Scary twin. <laughs> the, um, the film, um, film was Jack Nicholson in the hotel. it? To- uh, the Shining shining can you shine remember in the film you come up with two twins <laughs> Look, <laughs> identical twins we can't think of these two twins <laughs> that have the spooky connection but they're identical to each other so we call <laughs> so, so that
1: terrifying so that i mean i've never come across that phenomenon before um and i i'm i'm uh, used to sort of the the traditional mechanisms by which bacteria are found to um or, or by which resistance is encouraged um i wonder if we could go through the the, the typical sort of um methods by which we see resistance in bacteria
0: yeah and um, the traditional or the ways in which you develop resistance normally in yeah it's uh, important from a physician's point of view normally it's Um, There are lots of reasons for uh, why a patient who initially has a strain of bacteria that is sensitive to a drug will develop uh, resistance. One is sheer bad luck. Uh, The mutation to a single drug will be anywhere between one in a million. For isoniazid, I know the numbers for TB, I don't know the numbers for others, but they're all a similar range. But for uh, TB, for isoniazid, it's about one in a million cells for a it's one in a hundred million, so that's why we use combination therapies. Because then the the chances of a, of a drug being resistant both is the product of the, of those. So that's one in ten to the six times one uh, one in ten to the eight, one in ten to the twelve. So that's a billion trillion a billion a million billion. I think something like that. There is a lot of cells, so you never have that number of cells in your body, whereas you normally have around about 10 to the 8 cells in your body if you have uh, pro-TB and that means that um, if you treat with one drug you're probably going to get a resistance.
1: Mm.
0: Key thing with TB is treating with more than one drugs. With other bacterial infections such as E. coli, um, they normally don't have so many cells in the body so usually one drug is enough but sometimes with drug, if you've got possibility of drug-resistant strains, you will use combination therapy. So, of course, making sure that your therapy is adequate to kill all of the population and not leave any mutants. So that's the most important thing. The kind of things that can happen still, if that, um, if the patient takes the drugs and you and you're doing all of that, is the patient may not continue to take them. In TB, of course, it's. It's very common that, as you know, patients may get better within a few weeks. They'll be mm. with the drugs and they'll feel fine. And you know, if they're seeing regularly at a clinic and, um, and then you'll keep checking up and okay, you're still taking the drugs. More of a problem is in the developing world where patients will often have to pay for therapy. They get well, they feel fine, so they sell the drugs to the guy down the road who's got a cough. And then they haven't cleared the infection in their, in their lungs you've still got some of these bacterias hanging on in there and you take the antibiotic away and then they come back. And now there's an increased chance that they're going to have uh, drug resistant strains. So patient compliance is another thing. The quality of the drugs is another thing. There's more of a problem in the developing world where you have um, drugs coming from all sorts of uh, disreputable sources. But also absorption is another thing. Not everyone absorbs the drugs and um, um, and that's uh, very much a, um, a, a personal thing that uh, patients differ in the amount of absorption. So finding out what the level of the drug is in serum is usually too expensive therapeutic drug monitoring. That's a big deal for... Um, you would only do it for very uh, toxic drugs where you're afraid of toxicity and you uh, do regular measurements. Um, but those are the kind of factors that will... Um, that will uh, promote drug resistance. And then, of course, if a patient has a drug-resistant strain, then they should really be isolated because then they can transmit that to a, um, another, another person. And then uh, that will be primary resistance where the strain is resistant right at the onset of therapy. Oh, and the other extremely important thing in, in treatment, of course, is they, um, the line is, goes something like, never add just a single drug to an already failing Mm-hmm. so if you're giving um say three or four drugs for uh, tb and that fails don't give one more drug that's the worst thing you could do because the tb will undoubtedly develop resistance to that one drug you've got to give at least two preferably three new drug diff- new drugs that or three drugs that to which the strain is susceptible to you've got to do drug uh, susceptibility profiles and make sure that the strain is is susceptible to some other drugs and give preferably at least three dr- more drugs because otherwise you 're doing the same thing as as developed the resistance, adding one more drug and you had a strain that was sensitive to three and uh, was resistant to three uh, drugs now becoming four drugs and then five drugs you add another and then six drugs and very, very quickly you can ramp it up to get a strain that 's Resistant to practically everything we we have in our pharmacopeia, so um, that's really a, a really important uh, point. That never add a single drug to a failing regime.
1: Are these um, observations that you're you're talking about with um, TB and, and particularly multi-drug resistant TB? Uh, are, are those distinct for for mycobacteria, or is there? crossover between different um, more common infections should i say so things like utis or upper respiratory tract lower respiratory tract infections
0: so uh, persisters are a problem in every infectious disease you get persisters. normally say with utis it's not such a problem because you, know, you only need to treat for a couple of weeks or so a week or so and therefore and that will kill all of the bacteria um including the persisters. um the, the, with say coli will replicate optimally about every 20 minutes or so. Mm. So you can kill the population by having the antibiotics around long enough to get down to the 99.999% until you get rid of the persisters. with TB. Uh, the bug only replicates about every day. So that means that that gives you the six months treatment and that gives you much more of a problem of persisters. um, than uh, with uh, most. Uh, so, the more acute infections uh, are not normally such a problem with persistence because um, you, normally a, a fairly short course of treatment is enough to sterilize the
1: patient. Yeah. What I've um, witnessed in my relatively short uh, career now as a doctor, I've been a doctor for about uh, 12 years. Um, when I first started, there were some. Antibiotics. I had to literally call up the uh, microbiology registrar or consultant on call to uh, get them prescribed for the patient. And now I've witnessed s- those same medications being given routinely post-operatively. We've seen a huge shift in the use of stronger, more broad spectrum antibiotics in response to um, uh, microbes that are gaining resistance. What is, on a global level, I know we've talked about persisters and we've talked about multiple regimes. On a global level, what, what are the, the main driving factors behind what I see anecdotally and what I hear about in, in different healthcare systems?
0: Same kind of things as I spoke to before, but on a, word, on a more widespread and scary kind of level in that um, um, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the drugs, essentially drug resistance, which is an evolutionary process, trillions of bugs in our environment and we're throwing antibiotics at them constantly, not only in, in medicine, but also in, in agriculture. And, um, we are providing them with a huge selective pressure to develop resistance. And that is not going to go away. And it is going to increasingly, it's an accelerating thing. You, you, um, uh, once you get a resistance, it's going to be in your population for a long, long time. And, um, and it makes that antibiotic essentially useless. So what it means is that this has got to be balanced by uh, pharmaceutical companies discovering new drugs all the time. And they haven't been, really been able to keep up with that. And it's now becoming, now pharmaceutical companies are becoming more willing to invest in antibiotics. But essentially the problem was from a pharma. A pharma um, pharmaceutical company perspective most infectious diseases were quick you only give them a week or two of drugs mm. the pharmaceutical companies are of course much more interested in the long term drugs for the chronic diseases they got more payback on them so they weren't so interested in developing new antibiotics but now the world is is being assaulted by drug resistant strains from, uh, as well as TB, MRSAs of course in, in, in hospitals uh, pseudomonas strains, Pansiella, and all of these pathogens are becoming more and more resistant. And the number of drugs that we have are, are, are getting fewer and fewer. And um, uh, we've got to really try to do something about uh, prescribing practices. Uh, and I think we need to, as well as the, the kind of microbiological things we can do, finding out more about why physicians overprescribe. And they do, and um, we know that everyone overprescribes. We still know that loads of, of uh, antibiotics are given to people with sore throats that they don't. There almost certainly isn't, a, or most usually isn't, a um, an infection that, that needs an antibiotic, and so many other things that um, um that don't need treatment. Um, and I, I guess we need to doctors have to be more more willing to be able to say no to the patient. You're not going to uh, have this antibiotic. It's, it may make you feel better just because I'm giving you something, but it's not going to make you better. So I'm not going to give it to you because it's really, I think there's still a huge amount of, in, of over-prescribing. And of course, in a, a developed country like the UK, at least we try to control it, but in countries where patients can just go into a pharmacy and just order antibiotics over the counter, then that is also a much um, more serious thing. And um, um, and that's usually the case in most uh, developing countries, that it's possible to buy antibiotics over the counter. And then they, uh, there's nothing controlling their, their usage. So I think it does require a more global approach to trying to conserve antibiotics. I mean... We've, um, we've been, you know, there's huge campaign, of course, to conserve the climate, quite rightly. We've got to conserve the climate for our, our children, but we also have to conserve antibiotics for our children. We've seen what happens when we get a, uh, an infectious agent that we don't have a, um, a treatment for with COVID. It's turning us back into 19th century kind of um, situation where most people could potentially be dev- dying of infectious diseases. Uh, antibiotics are a fantastic um, um uh, medical intervention they are so good so effective um and they're reckoned to have them and um i think um oral rehydration therapy are, are reckoned to be have the greatest benefit to mankind but we're losing that benefit by over prescribing so i think we've got to really try to tackle that problem
1: yeah a- another insight i would say from the front line so i i I often work in AE. in fact, I mainly work in A&E now and um, I had a patient actually with a resistant uh, UTI. she'd been on three different courses. and it was an e coli that was resistant to all the three first line therapies that we have. The other thing that's very perplexing as a for, as a frontline practitioner are, are the diagnostic tools that we currently have um, for, as as of today, in my local A E where I work, I have to wait a few days for the cultures to come back to find out whether the antibiotic that I prescribed today is still effect is actually the correct one and that takes 3 days by which time I've started trimethoprim or nitrofurantoin or a cephalosporin and also mapping where the microbial outbreaks are particularly a resistant ones so we can be more locally responsive because those guidelines don't change very often at all so I think there's there's definitely the element of behavior change and trying to introduce primary care practitioners to more um, effective ways of educating the wider society. But also we don't have the tool. We're, we're really practicing a rudimentary style of medicine, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's worse than that, really. We do have the tools. It will be possible to, to give you and to give physicians tools in which you would be able to get drug resistance profiles within hours. That's possible. Mm. Today. Or it's, it's, it's just expensive. So it's a matter of investment. Mm. and uh, how much are we prepared to ex- invest on, in developing um new tools we're, we're trying to work actually with chinese partners to try to develop um diagnostic tests exact which i think is exactly what you need then mm. to plug into a mobile phone because i think electronics is the way you've got to go and, um, Absolutely, you have so many plug-in devices that, we, that are very expensive that we're pay, to pay for. If you could have a device that we could plug into a mobile phone and give us a, a drug resistance, which is what we're trying to do with, uh, as I said, say, uh, ch- some Chinese partners for things like Klebsiella, in fact, for antibody resistance in Klebsiella, Klebsiella, which is a big problem in China. Um, that's what, And also similarly for therapeutic drug monitoring, we would have better success of therapy if we were able to, apply therapeutic drug monitoring um, routinely, but it's too expensive. Again, if you could get a pinprick test, put a drop of blood onto a little, yeah. onto a little slide, poke it into a device that you put into your mobile phone, mm. then we should be doing it. And yeah. uh, But that may be years away to develop that. But we've already got technology that can identify the genes in all of the uh, bacteria that, um, um, uh, that we currently have problems with uh genetic tests for each of those genes and we can do them in hours already um but it's just that most labs aren't equipped to that we've discovered how badly equipped our diagnostic labs are in this country mm-hmm. we still they've had a lack of investment for many years a lot of it has been privatized and then they get hit by the COVID pandemic and suddenly we've discovered hey we're, we're rubbish at doing diagnostics rapidly uh, you know people have to go across the country to get a diagnostic test done ridiculous and this is uh, for a a, a wealthy developed country like UK that uh, is in this kind of state Um, and it's as you say it's uh, even for the routine stuff waiting three days for something that you can get a a test a result for um, with existing technology in a few hours it's just not available in your
1: clinic yeah yeah absolutely agree Um, I I can't talk to you without talking about your your sort of oh, I see it as like a double life but I'm sure you see it completely intertwined but how you uh wrote a book on uh human consciousness quantum biology how you've how you've come to that through your uh your, your journey through a period. I kind of consider it that um
0: uh it's this is my paid work the tb stuff
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: this is the stuff I get paid for the other stuff is the wacky stuff okay mm. I do get still now get paid for it. I'm now director of the quantum biology centre here at Surrey, so I do get paid for that now. Mm, mm. But yeah, I've, I got into um, quantum biology um, um, more than 20 years ago now when uh, I was interested in mutation, talked about mutation and the, um, it's, it's important in TB mm. and in other bacteria for development of resistance. And peculiar mutations seem to be appearing in in um, some experiments that appear to um, arise only when they provided an advantage to the cell. And this was highly strange because we think of mutation as being random. Mutation mm. caused by cosmic rays or radiation, radiation or heat or uh, all sorts of things cause mutation. And they're thought to be entirely random. And yet these mutations seem to arise only when they can provide an advantage, which is very strange. Anyway, I came up with, a, I'd, I'd just been reading a very interesting book by um, John Gribbin called Schrodinger's Cat, which was, I think, one of the first popular science books to um, um, popularise and tell the general reader how weird quantum mechanics is. I mean, I'd, I'd read some popular science books before, say about general relativity and stuff like this, and you learn about black holes, and you think, hey, they're weird. Read about quantum mechanics. Black holes are normal compared to quantum mechanics. It's way, way beyond weird. So, um, and I was staggered by how strange the world is at a quantum level. So essentially, quantum mechanics is the classical physics we see around us, uh, you know, cannonballs, rockets, all that kind of stuff, steam trains, electronics, uh, or most electronics, just work by all the classical rules that we're familiar with. When we go to the level of fundamental particles, the rules are all different. And they're very strange. Particles can be in two places at the same time. So if a, a golf ball behaved like a, um, a fundamental particle, it could land in two holes at the same time. It should be very happy for you doctors that are always going on golf, golf courses. So I remember, I remember, I remember my, uh, a colleague of mine when doing a PhD with me uh, saying, Saying that uh, oh, I'll go on a course tomorrow, but in- anything interesting? Yeah, golf course.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure it's definitely not that has all changed? <laughs> I'm sure that's not uh, not happening anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, if, if, you,
0: if you could quantum golf, you could uh, get two holes at once with your one ball. So um, that's what quantum mechanics can do. Particles can be in two places at once. They can, say, spin in two different directions at the same time. And they can also be entangled, which is something, I mean, Einstein gave us black holes um, backwards in time travel and um, all all sorts of weird stuff like that. And he said, no, this is too, (laughs) this this can't happen. And they called it spooky action at a distance, which is where two particles can be separated, say, by the entire length of the galaxy. And if you tweak one, the other one will jump instantaneously so bang they'll go like that Uh, when you tweak one this one will jump and there can be a galaxy or there can be an entire universe between them and they'll still jump simultaneously and that was so weird that Einstein said no this is he called it spooky action at a distance it's called entanglement but then experiments in the 1970s showed that the world is that spooky it does happen so there's that Particles can go through walls. So if you're a quantum particle, you could pass through walls that you shouldn't really be able to go through without a battle axe. Um, you can just float through them, uh, ghost-like through a wall. And um, uh, yeah, so all of these funny, weird things happen in quantum mechanics. And they weren't to be relevant to anything big. But then this uh, co- uh, adaptive mutations, that, as, it were, um, as they were described, uh, came up. And, um, and I thought, hmm, I could have a quantum mechanical explanation. Um, and I worked something out on the back of an envelope kind of uh, explanation for it. And I can't publish anything about this. So, but I talked to some physicists. So I phoned up our physics department and they said, oh, why not come and give us a seminar? And, um, and I did. I was just giving a similar background <laughs> to mechanics to a physics class, you know, head, uh, head into the lion's mouth. And I had a fairly sceptical reception, but actually Jim Al-Khalili, who I'm sure you know of, I was he's also a physicist here at Surrey. Um, and he came up to me afterwards and said, well, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of problems, but it's interesting. So over the next months, or in fact two years or so, we were working on it and trying to make something that worked and eventually wrote a paper about it. And um, and then I, I went on and wrote this book, Quantum Evolution, back in 2000, making, um, proposing a more general role for quantum mechanics in biology. And, um, but nothing really happened for a decade or, or so, nearly two decades, and then suddenly, over in the US particularly, um, experiments started popping up which um, um, demonstrated that at the molecular level quantum mechanics was playing a role in biology mm. and uh, and then myself and Jim got together to write, to write another book Life on the Edge which uh, was published in uh, 2013 I think um, explaining all, all of that stuff and that showed that quantum mechanics seems to be involved in photosynthesis uh, the first step in photosynthesis where for example a particle of light a photon hits a system and the energy has been transferred from here to here. And it was thought to kind of hop around in a random kind of way until it reached here. No, it just goes straight here through a quantum mechanical process where it goes by all routes simultaneously. So remember a particle can be in two places at once, but it can travel by two routes at once and end up at the right place much faster than it would otherwise do. So that seems to be involved in photosynthesis. Enzymes work through quantum mechanics by bringing the substrates to enzymes, say, will, um, will move a proton, say, from one molecule to another. And enzymes do it by bringing things together close enough that it allows a particle to walk through walls. Remember I said particles will walk through walls? It does this in, in inside enzymes, and enzymes are, are responsible for for making life really. And they accelerate chemical reactions by factors of 10 to the 20, one with 20 noughts on the end, which if you could accelerate your walking speed by that, you could walk across the universe in seconds. So that's how much of an acceleration an enzyme provides. And no one really understands how, and quantum mechanics seems to at least provide some of the answer. Um, And then avian birds, birds fly around the planet, navigating, they can detect the earth's magnetic field, they you know, so weak that you have to get a really sensitive uh, magnet balanced on a, on a compass to, to uh, detect it. And yet birds can detect it, and they use their eyes to detect it. And that involves this spooky action at a distance, it seems, that mm. uh, the uh, Einstein the didn't like. Um, so quantum mechanics seems to be involved in life. And actually, when you think about it, at a molecular level, Life is all about enzymes. What they do is move protons and electrons around in biomolecules. And if you ask a a physicist, if you want to move protons and electrons around, what science do you need? And that's the science of quantum mechanics. And biology discovered that billions of years ago. And it's been working with it, working out clever ways of using quantum mechanics for billions of years. And we're now trying to work out how they do it.
1: So, what what I'm trying to process through in my head is how I, I can understand how quantum biology is related to persistence in in the uh, multi drug resistant TB and and how you have this like adaptive pattern that doesn't uh, ascribe to the, the the principles that we would have thought of random action or random mutation. Um, how does this apply to consciousness in in, in humans? How- consciousness? Uh, well, that's that's another story.
0: I love a story. And it actually goes back to the uh, the book I, I wrote on quantum, quantum biology all those years ago, quantum evolution. And chapter 13 was about consciousness. And I, put it, I sent it to the publishers, and I chapter 13 on, about consciousness. And the reason for that was that um, actually Roger Penrose, who won the, who won the um, Nobel Prize this year, um, and an um, American anaesthetist, uh, Stuart Hammerhoff, came up with an idea of, about how consciousness works using quantum mechanics. Um, and I thought, okay, well, that's cool. I can include that in Chapter 13. Um, but then when I started to work on Chapter 13, I looked into their theory. I found I couldn't believe it. It just didn't make any sense at all. And the reason for that is that it required your whole brain to be a quantum mechanical state, and the things I've spoken about already about quantum biology, it involves electrons and protons and very few of them, you know, small numbers of particles. As the number of particles gets bigger and bigger, it's harder and harder to maintain it in a quantum state. Mm-hmm. And what uh, Hammerhoff and um, Penrose were claiming was that somehow you had this quantum mechanical state involving your entire brain. And I didn't didn't feel I could promote that thing so i was left with a problem chapter 13 what do i write and um and what i came up with then i thought hard. Huh, it made me read a lot about consciousness and, mm-hmm. and made me realize that what was special about the quantum mechanics of why penrose and hammer were interested in it is it unified all the information because a quantum mechanical body if you like is what we would call a field. And a field is, is a structure where everything is unified within it. Mm-hmm. So, And how, what we know about consciousness, if you just look around you, everything you see seems unified. It isn't that the, the color of an object over there, I can see a wall that's painted blue. Blue is actually, um, that is recorded in your eye, but it's analyzed by one part of your brain. The shape of the wall over there is by another part of the brain. The structure of the building is another part of the brain, and all of these things are analysed by different parts of your brain, and yet they're all stuck together in our, in our conscious mind, and we call this a binding problem. How does our brain stick it all together? Quantum mechanics could have done it, but I didn't think it had. it was possible to unify matter in the brain. The problem with matter is that all the different parts of matter move against each other, and that breaks the quantum mechanics. Mm. But it occurred to me there is a field in the brain that physicians, any neuro, neuro um, neurologist knows about, and that's the electromagnetic field. It's what, when you put electrodes on, onto patient's skulls, you to measure EEG, you put them in a, in MEG, you measure the magnetic component of the electromagnetic field. And the electromagnetic field in the brain is generated by all the nerves firing. So it has exactly the same information as in the nerve. So that nerve firing that registers the color blue, and that nerve firing that registers the shape of the window over there, and the nerve firing for everything else going on in my perception, is as well as the information going down the nerve itself, like a conventional wire, and giving a response, that's, a, that's the color blue, which we can do maybe unconsciously. We do a lot of our a lot of what happens in our brain is un- un- unconscious isn't the right word. It's better to say non-conscious. We're not conscious of what, I'm not conscious of what I do with my hands all the time, but they still do it. I'm not conscious of my lips moving to make the words that I do. And that's an enormously complex calculation that's going on in my, in my, in my brain that makes my lips and mouth and everything generate the right shapes to make words. I'm not conscious of it. Mm. So most of what our brain does, we're not conscious of. But some of it we are, and it's joined up. It's part of the, it's bound together in our conscious mind. But all of the brains that are driving the outputs of, of uh, you know, our, our lips and all of this kind of stuff, all of those outputs and our hand movements, they're all making little electrical signals. that go going to the brain's EM field, electromagnetic field, that are picked up by the EEG and MEG. And it just occurred to me, well, when we say, when we're looking for consciousness, what, what we normally just say is, what is the seat of consciousness? And everyone thinks the matter, you've got to look at the matter of the brain for the seat of consciousness, because that's the stuff that you can cut up and look at and look, here's a brain and mm. it's the obvious stuff that's there. But there's also an invisible field there. And that is just as real as the matter. If you remember... Einstein's very famous equation, E equals mc squared. Matter is on one side, the mc squared. And the other side is energy. Mm. The field in our brain, the electromagnetic field is pure energy. That's just as real and just as physical as the matter of the brain. And it's just as complex and it's got exactly the same information because every time a nerve fires, it sends a little electromagnetic signal into the into the um, volume of the brain. So if we took, or if we could somehow magic away the matter of the brain, we'd be left with this most complex electromagnetic object in the, entire, in the known universe, which has exactly the same structure as the brain and contains all of its information. And it struck me, that's a better seat for consciousness because everything is joined together. The thing about the electromagnetic fields is there's no parts to them. And you can tell that in, in, in terms of how we deal with electromagnetic fields. Here's a phone. I can pick up a signal. If you call me, I can pick up your signal here. Or if I'm over at the other end of campus, I can also pick up your signal. It's everywhere. And it's the same And this is what electromagnetic fields do. They're the same everywhere. The information is overlapping and, it's, and it can be accessed everywhere. So it just struck me that, wow, this is a much better place to put the seat of consciousness. And it made sense with a lot of data as well. What um, um, the neuroscientists that looking at consciousness and I wasn't one of them at the time and doing a little bit of work now, but they look for correlates of consciousness to try to understand it better. What's going on in the brain that correlates with consciousness. And one of the only thing that really worked well as a correlate of consciousness is to do with the synchrony of neural firing. Mm. And then... People like Wolf Singer, a um, German and neurophysiologist, did these experiments on monkeys and other people. Loads of other people have done these experiments. They look at, at attention as a as a measure of consciousness. We we know we attend to something, oh, we notice something. When we're looking looking for our glasses, that uh, for me at least, looking for my glasses, I can be staring at my dark desk and I don't see them. Oh wow, here they are, and I can see. There's my glasses. That moment when we're looking and we don't see the same information of my glasses is going into my brain, but I'm not registering it. It's not conscious. What they showed with the monkeys, because they could do these experiments by putting electrodes in the brain and monitoring individual neurons. When the neuro, when the monkeys weren't seeing whatever they were looking at, banana or something, maybe when they was, were, when the information was going into the brain and they weren't seeing it, Nerves were firing, but they were firing asynchronously. Mm. When the monkeys registered, wow, okay, that's, that's the banana, then the neurons fired synchronously. That was the correlate. Now, what will happen when neurons fire synchronously? When you look at the electromagnetic field, fields go up and down. So when neurons fire asynchronously, The up part of one neuron will hit the down part of another neuron, and when you add them together, they make zero. When they fire synchronously, the up and downs are are together. So instead of cancelling each other out, they reinforce each other. So neurons that fire synchronously will project into the electromagnetic field of the brain, into the conscious mind. So that explained. And this was the first paper which I wrote which was making that case that synchrony being the best correlate of consciousness is entirely consistent with the, with the electromagnetic field of the brain being a seat of consciousness. And thereby, uh, and, and I, then I wrote various other papers about this um, over the years, every now and again, like in lockdown, I wrote, I thought, what can I do while I'm stuck here in my room all day? <laughs> 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 and um, I wrote paper, another paper on consciousness, which came out uh, a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I came across that. And and so j- just because I, I know I want to be respectful of your time, what we know about consciousness or what, what we believe to think about consciousness being energy rather than the actual physical structure of the brain um, differentiates us from computers, which is why computers don't have a consciousness. What, what can that, what kind of um, insights does that give us today, us as humans, us going about our daily lives? What can we glean from this theory that we can put into action today to, to live healthier, happier lives? I, I'd like to leave the listeners with a few tips. Okay? <laughs> Oh, yeah, a lot. Uh,
0: um, yeah, I don't know, it's, uh, it, to me, knowing a little bit more uh, about consciousness as, um, uh, is, is what makes me, uh, it's interesting, I mean, understanding more, I mean, to me, you know, consciousness makes much more sense than it did before, and that to me makes me feel healthier and happier, it doesn't make me any healthier and happier, but it can Of course, consciousness for um, neurologists is an extremely important uh, um, uh, thing to measure. Um, In locked-in patients, are they really locked in? Is there someone? Mm. How do you tell the difference between life or brain death? Mm. And what it gives you is a, a method, or at least the potential of finding out how you can measure consciousness more accurately than we currently do. And actually how it's measured is actually looking at the EEG and looking at patterns in the EEG, and the more complexity of that pattern seems to correlate best with whether a patient is conscious or not. Um, so I think it does have medical significance understanding what consciousness is, and maybe maybe even treating some, some forms of of uh, of, uh Pathologies that may interfere with consciousness. And I won't dare to, to really go into that as I'm not a physician, but we know that consciousness is many different states. Some that people interfere with with drugs, etc. but others that people will get depressed. And I don't know why, but maybe there are ways in which we can, if by understanding how consciousness works, we can interfere with it. And then lastly, there is the very cool and, uh, and rather scary possibility that understanding it more will allow us to. Engineer it, and this I think I would love to see this in my lifetime making a robot think. And yeah. you know, it would be I think that would be most more the most remarkable achievements of, of humanity if we managed to make an artificial mind that really can think rather than just calculate and think like us and talk back to us. And that, that, that would be would, to me, would be the most fantastic advantage. So I think, and I think it, I think there are ways if we understand if I'm right and consciousness is the electromagnetic field in order to make a conscious mind, you've got to compute through electromagnetic fields and there are ways of doing that, but computers aren't made with that architecture in mind. So there is a route towards making an artificial consciousness once we take that on board, but it's a completely different way of making a computer. And where we normally computers are made to insulate themselves from the electromagnetic that they generate we call that interference electrical interference so computers are are made to avoid that what I'm saying is make a computer that uses that that uses electrical interference as well if they do they'll eventually become conscious so last uh, thought for the day
1: yeah, no, uh, thank you so much. I really do appreciate the time, Professor. So that's and, quite uh, nice, in yeah, opinion. it's uh, it's yeah, it's definitely a pleasure to chat to you, and I'm, I'm sure we'd have to do something like this again because uh, I've got a whole load of questions. <laughs> 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 it is quite hard to summarise that conversation because we covered multiple topics quite quickly. So like I said right at the start, what I would suggest is if you go to doctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast, go to the relevant page for today's pod and uh, watch some of the video links that I've put there that really do break down the building blocks of quantum biology uh, theories around human consciousness and how it's not a computational product, it's more the energy and we, we touched on, on that earlier as well um, and also some other uh, Resources regarding what we were meant to be talking about, which is antimicrobial resistance. If you're interested in other podcasts, uh, we're doing a whole series on uh, microbes and and resistance and preventing the next pandemic. Um, But uh, I I am quite fascinated by the subject matter of human consciousness and how this uh, information can actually help us yield healthier, happier lives. There is definitely... My personal belief, it's quite hard to prove, but there is definitely something in human belief, the power of community and that that genuine sense of purpose that can yield benefits to our daily lives. We didn't go into it in too much detail today, but um, there's the podcast that I mentioned earlier with Jeffrey Redinger, which talks about spontaneous remission and looks specifically at the associations between those who have had quite frankly miraculous improvements in their health and well-being um, and the the sorts of things that they went through in terms of psychological impacts taking control of their mindset as well as the physical actions of eating better and exercising well there is definitely something in that, and it definitely needs a lot more unpacking i'm probably going to have to do this on another podcast but until then i will see you next time